these technologies were deliberately designed to grab and hold your attention for as long as possible. That's how they get paid. That's every, every trick that they can think of. They are trying to draw your attention to them. But the thing is, Matt, that is, that is not inevitable. That is a choice that those companies and those designers made in 2002 or whenever to say, we are going to leverage every trick we can in order to hold your attention hostage. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you all joining us through LinkedIn Live. Hey, Matt. Hi, Rachel. Um, you've joined us for Cap and Gown. I'm Rachel Phillips-Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources, joined today by our president, Matt Boisvert. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but spring is here. So I know not everywhere. I know there's going to be some people who are like, shut your mouth, Rachel. We're buried under snow. But yeah. this is a really beautiful time um, in Texas. It, this is your favorite. Time. Yes. When we get to July, then you guys can all, then, then I'll commiserate about how bad the weather is, but it's like, everything is turning green and it's so lovely. So we're glad for you guys to join us. And the semester, I mean, we are like in the thick of registration, not registration, making sure that we're making plans for our students to come back. Um, so everybody, every meeting I've been to, it's been like, yeah, it's pretty busy around here trying to get all the things done. So and Matt, you and I are about to take a trip to Boston. So I got to check the weather in Boston. I suspect it's not as pretty as it is here. I don't know about that. I, I don't know. NASPA, Boston. Yeah. yeah. All right. We got to check it out. Okay. So we are talking today about how to teach your students to have healthy technology boundaries. Um. I'm going to do a full introduction of that topic. This is our last um, piece coming out of our book, Stolen Focus, which I'll do kind of a review of. But this is a, I'm happy that it's springy and beautiful outside because this is a really hard topic today. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm usually uh, very optimistic and, and I um, just have a lot of optimism about the future. But when we spend this time talking about stolen focus and technology's role in that, it makes me a little unhappy. Yeah. Because that, it takes away some optimism. But I'm going to bring it today. I'm going to I'm going to end with some optimism. I promise. Okay. Well, let's start with some joy because that is our um, focus. Our theme of the year is choose joy, yeah. be joyful. So I have three words for you again. The first one is shalom, which a lot of people know. That is about wholeness, harmony, tranquility, welfare, and prosperity. That's Hebrew. Then we have a word that comes from Cherokee. This is gaduji, and it means working together for the common good and a voluntary undertaking community task, which I love that one, gaduji. Mm -hmm. And then the last one I have for you is Japanese. It's fubutushi, fubutushi. And it is scenic poetry. It is a phenomenon that evokes a particular season. So I think especially relevant as we're looking at all of our trees that are blooming and then coming in with this vibrant green and our grass is turning green. We have some 
fubu tushi going on. So beautiful. Need to start with some joy. Okay. Um, anything else you want to chit chat about before we dive into the State of the Union? Um. Well, I will say this as we get started. If you love cap and gown, it would be best if you would subscribe either on YouTube or follow us on LinkedIn because every Tuesday we are uh, live on LinkedIn. So here you've got a QR code. Just uh, scan that with the phone and follow us. Yeah. All right. So that means it's time for State of the Union. I have some good State of the Union for you today. First of all, um, Higher Ed Drive reported that the Tennessee legislature just passed a bill banning TikTok from college campuses in Tennessee. Um, that happened, actually, it didn't just happen. It happened last Thursday. Um, they did not name TikTok. They just said they would prohibit Chinese-owned social media from being accessible through Wi-Fi on public campuses. So that's wow. interesting. Um, we've been watching that story quite a bit just to kind yeah. of see we've got um, public um, K-12s in New York who I think have also banned it. And so just we'll just it'll be interesting to see how that develops. The next thing is that finally the education department has said the FAFSA is going to debut in December. So I told you that they were going to do a new simplified FAFSA. They didn't know when they were going to be able to roll that out. Now they are saying that that is going to happen in December. You remember it usually happens in October. However, this is going to be the new form for students seeking aid for the 2024-2025 academic year. Okay. Um, it's pretty interesting. So they, they've kind of kept open the, what do you call that, like comment section on this for a while for people to be able to say, we like this, we don't like this. Um, <clears throat> sometime in spring of 2023, so that's now, the education department is going to publish tools to help officials understand differences between the EFC expected family contribution. Historically, that's the metric for determining how much students and families pay for college after aid. And the new thing that they have, which is the student aid index. So there's going to be a different kind of equation that they do. And then in this summer, Student aid officers, uh, sorry, the student aid office is going to start offering webinars for administrators so they can understand this change. So part of the hardship was they just weren't going to be ready to get everybody trained up on it by October. So they've pushed it back so yeah. that they'll have some more time to train. Well, I'm really glad they, they have changed the name from EFC, the expected family contribution to a student aid index. Yep. Because because a lot of families would look at that expected family contribution and panic. Right. Be like, there's no way. There's no, there's no way. Yeah. So really it sounds like the fundamental changes besides that language change is a lot of un, uh, behind the scenes updates to systems and processes so that those who work really closely with students will have the tools that they need. And it will be a really, you know, smooth transition and, and their ability to help those students. So Keep your eye out for that. As we learn more about that, I will let you know. Okay, an article from timeshighereducation.com talks about reframing feedback as a valuable learning tool. This is one that I would just read. Also, um, you know, we're always talking about how faculty want to be better teachers and they want to, 
do a good job engaging with their students, but you have some faculty who just don't know how. They may not have had training. It maybe just doesn't come naturally to them. So this would be a good one to share with them. It talks specifically about how you give feedback, how you set it up, how just the explanation of why you're giving feedback, because I'm trying to help you be better, right? It's I'm not being critical. I'm trying to help you improve. It also talks about developing a student's capacity for their own judgment so that they would be able to say, I think I did a great job here or I'm going to be honest, I think this is terrible work that I just handed into you. Um, and then the last two points in this article are, which this one I think is really important, help students manage emotional responses, which is incredibly important, talking about, hey, when I give you feedback and it's negative feedback, what happens inside of you and how can you manage that? I would say particularly that is a place where I don't think faculty feel comfortable helping that process as much. A lot of times when we talk about kind of even early alert referrals, it, there is this distance that we want to create between this emotional engagement with a student and then can somebody else kind of help me manage that process, right? So I think that emotional response would be one that would be great to just do like a lunch and learn <clears throat> for your faculty. I just think, I just think if a school university does this really well, employers will be flocking to that university because sure. if, if your graduates are able to emotionally handle, uh, you know, negative feedback, that's a huge plus. Also having gone through that cycle of, of feedback with a faculty member, they're going to be better and, and want to, they'll understand what the expectations are. And, you know, we have a great school. Alverno College is, is just great at this. And so um, I love that. There's a lot of best practices. There are schools that do this really well. Definitely would be helpful, especially as we talked about chat GPT in the, in the role. Like, how do we use this to help? So as a, a student's using this tool, how can we provide some feedback um, with with their process and, and what how they're using it? So yeah, the interesting. Yeah, the last thing this article says is make sure that you guide your students to take action, which I really love that in terms of like an assessment that it's not just, hey, here's the feedback I have for you. But now you should make a, um, an appointment to go to the tutoring center or you should work really hard on clarity of idea. Right. But helping them know what are the next best steps, I think. is Well, we know you love action items. Oh, so, I do yeah. love action items. Um Okay, this article is in the vein of everything that we learned coming out of COVID. So there's an article from Inside Higher Ed called How Online Teaching Can Promote Empathy. I really love this article because it's saying, here's what we found about faculty who were able to create a sense of belonging even as they were delivering online classes and how important that was and how students did better in their class, how vital it is to their ability to be successful and understand what's going on. So I think it's probably worth um, a whole read. But the two things that I want to pull out are, first of all, they say, listen to what students want, but take it with a grain of salt. Um, While students have opinions for and against online learning and its efficacy, the evidence suggests that most students want it to stick around because of the convenience it affords. So that's super helpful. We've talked about, you know, equity and how do you have access to things. And we, have, we talked last week about single mothers and how they need to have convenience. Yeah. But also, just because students like certain aspects of online teaching doesn't mean they're optimal for their learning. So really coming back and saying, 
Um, are there, they say, desirable difficulties that come from not putting everything online? Yes, it's a little bit harder. However, it sets you up for the struggle to then be able to learn really well. So obviously not in every case, but I think it's worth the question for sure. Yeah. Um, let me see. I think there was one other thing. Oh, and then also they talk about um, inviting students to be co-creators or co-designers of learning to be able to say like, hey, so we're going to do this hybrid. Let's sit together and talk about which of these lessons were really helpful for you online. Which do you want to tweak? Um, a university even created like a course design associate, which is a student who's helping you say like, hey, I watched that video and I didn't understand anything you said. We've got to like tweak it so that it's better. I love that. You know, I do the, the co-creator part. So in in um, a classroom, that's always happening. Yeah. You know, student feedback or discussions. So how do you how do you how are you intentional about that co-creation process online? And I find that the language that when you say to a student, it's our expert expert, right? Like I'm going to bring my expertise in this subject, but our class suffers when you don't bring your full self, your experience, what you think, how you think about it. So it's great. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to try to be cool about this one, but my favorite state of the union today comes out of inside higher ed. It's called creating a friendlier syllabus. First of all, you guys remember that I'm always telling you, you need to put your resources, you need to get a statement that you can give to faculty to put your holistic referral language in the syllabus so that when faculty go over on the first day, they say, and we have this great resource, it's called Beacon, um, I might refer you if I think you need help, they have so many things that they can help you do. Okay, well, this creating a friendly friendlier syllabus. And this would be one that I would encourage you to share with faculty because it is a workshop actually attached to this article where you go through and they talk about how are you sending belonging cues in your syllabus? How are you sending signs of care? How have you gone in and said, um, what's Carol, Carol Dweck's um, growth mindset? How are you talking about growth mindset? So it just leads you through, like, look at your syllabus and find the places where you've done these things. A couple things that I want to um, call out of this article. One thing they encourage you to do is to do a belonging letter in your syllabus, which is where okay. you say, for example, hey, in my first math class in undergraduate, I really struggled and I didn't do a good job. And I went and talked to my faculty member and they suggested that I go to tutoring. And then I fell in love with math so much that I ended up getting my PhD. And that's why I get to teach you in this class. And I hope I can give you some of my excitement about that. It's so great, right? Because it's like, there is struggle. You are going to struggle. Look, I have a PhD and I struggled in the beginning too. So I love that inclusion there. Um, also they have things like include your beliefs. So this comes out of like STEM courses or sometimes a gatekeeper course to help students who feel like this is a make or break Kate, a course, this faculty member puts in, these are my beliefs. Anyone can be a scientist. All students are great, uh, capable of greatness. You are worthy of my best efforts as a teacher. I authentically care about your success and your well-being. And if you engage in the learning exercises in this course, you will pass the class and achieve a high level of content and skill mastery. Thank you, right? I just, so 
I could, we could do a whole show on this, but just the idea that you are taking this very first day where you're setting the stage where you're with your students and you're saying, I care about you. You can be successful. We are going to grow together. I'm accessible to you. And I want to hear about struggles that you're having. Okay. The last one, Matt, sorry. I have one more and then you can respond. Okay. The last one is they talk about this faculty member who put in a caregiver responsibility policy, which says, I have great respect for students who are balancing their pursuit of education with the responsibilities for caring for children or other family members. If you run into challenges that require you to miss a class or if caregiving responsibilities interfere with your ability to engage in remote learning, please contact me or the TA. There may be some instances of flexibility where we can offer support to your learning. So this whole project came out of a faculty board advisory board that just came together and said, let's talk about what are the best things to have in our syllabus. So awesome. Yeah, it's great. Okay. My last one is um, this. I I don't remember this, but undergraduate regalia can cost a hundred over a hundred dollars. If you're getting your doctorate, it can be a thousand dollars and up. So this research associate at a social work department at Northwestern State University um, in Nacogdoches, uh, Louisiana, asked a group of seniors if they were looking forward to graduation. One of the students said, no, I can't afford it. It's a hundred bucks for something I'm going to wear once. I have to buy groceries and get gas. And she was like, what? She said, would you would you attend if I could get you the cap and gown? And he's like, yeah, my family would love to see it. We just can't afford it. So she's like, that's ridiculous. So she started basically like a, um, it's not a food pantry. It's a, what do you call it when you have clothes for people to, we're going to call it a clothes pantry because I don't know. I don't know what else to call it. Basically, Yeah, where they just collect gowns. If people, Sometimes people wear them and they're like, I don't want it again. And so you can go and rent one and then go to your ceremony. So a couple of schools are doing that. I think it's such a practical, they literally have boxes outside after graduation that are like, hey, if you don't want to keep your robe, put it in here and we will make sure that somebody who needs it. Awesome. Yeah. Man, people have such good ideas. That well, is oh. oh, sorry. Okay. I was, that was, go ahead. What were you going to say? That. Okay. That's that was the State of the Union. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> So our topic today is about technology and about teaching our students how to have healthy boundaries with technology. Um, So I'm going to set this up for us just in terms of, okay, I have to take a cleansing breath first. (laughs) Okay, we've been talking about stolen focus. And we talked about talking to our students about how sleep is related to your GPA, about how reading makes you more empathetic and helps you remember things and understand the world and people better. Last week, we talked about mind wandering, which is putting boundaries up so your mind has free reign to think and, you know, imagine and be creative. And today we are talking about sort of the antithesis of all of that in that there is a, I hate to say enemy, but I'm going to say a, in a um, someone in opposition to that. There's something in opposition to all of those good pieces. And that is technology. And I love technology. I'm not saying anything. We're a technology company. I'm not saying anything bad about technology <laughs> in general. Right. 
But I am saying, I think we have to have a conversations with students and with ourselves so that we accurately understand the kinds of strategies and incentives that are built into so much of the technology that our students are spending time on. And so that we can give them thoughtful um, places and plans to address some of the things that technology is trying to take from them. So I'm going to go through a general overview of how some of these technologies got uh, created. I also would like to say, Matt, I'm not even talking about the actual technologies, technologies that our students are on right now. Like I'm talking about Facebook and Google and Twitter and YouTube. There's a whole nother generation that is doing things times four that these sort of foundational pieces are. So we're talking about old, old school that people are using, but they are the ones who created the practices that things like snack, 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 chap, no, snack, <laughs> what is Snapchat. it? Come on, Rachel. And um, TikTok and some of those other things are doing. Okay. So I'm not even going to touch those. I'm just going to talk about how these things got created because I think our students have to understand there are companies that are worth trillions of dollars whose stated goals are to steal as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. That's what Facebook said when they first started. Our goal is to steal as much time and your conscious attention as possible. And so I want to talk about how they're kind of doing that. Also, the frame for this is that if you understand your weaknesses, the magic doesn't work. So if you know how people use tools to make you more susceptible, to distract you, to get you off task, to make you feel angry, right? All of those sorts of things, the magic is diminished and then you can make good choices because you understand what's actually happening, right? So I love that idea. If once you know your so, weaknesses, you, you deplete the power of the magic. So, you know, my background is marketing. And so with my three kids, we've, from the time when they were young, talked about how this commercial, how is this commercial? What are they trying to tell you? Do you believe what it's saying? And making them think about, is this, is this true? And the reality of, of all of these tools today that you're talking about is that they are constantly advertising to you, marketing to you, learning to, to target you in a better way. And so if you start to learn that and see that, then just like now my daughter will be like, they're making that up. There's no way that does that. Right. So she's not as susceptible. Exactly what you're saying. I, yeah. I mean, I long for the old days where I could watch a commercial without the sound on and <clears throat> Lillian, I would be like, what are they selling? And she's like, happiness. And I'm like, right. They are, they're selling soda, but they are selling happiness, right? This, this level of um, marketing is a totally different level. Right. Right. <clears throat> There's this other really huge part of this that for you and I, as we've talked through this topic, it's so important because I think higher education is the antithesis of what these companies are doing, right? It's like they're they're kind of driving you into this, and we'll talk all today about it, but they're driving you to this kind of lower education, if there's any education at all. Um, and when you think about in higher ed, the goal of, of uh, helping someone grow 
and learn who they are. And then, you know, to think critically and be all, all the great things that higher education. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is one of those weapons that are, that are attacking higher ed. So for sure. Okay. So I want to talk about the history of some of these tools, the evolution of these distractions. Tristan Harris, who you may know from Social Dilemma, this was a show, um, I think it was on Netflix. So he, I, Matt, what's so funny about Social Dilemma, which I don't know, I don't know how this happened, but you know, I watched it and I was really freaked out about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible problem. What are we going to do? It, it is very similar to what we're talking about today. Right. And then I totally forgot about it. How, how is that possible? Right. Because we have trillion dollar companies who are trying to make me not remember that piece. But remember <laughs> right. how many times I want a dopamine hit in a day. Right. Okay. So Tristan Harris started at Stanford in 2002. He was um, part of a lab that was called the Pervasive Technology Lab. So this was a lab that was set up. It was basically the, the fundamental idea of this class was that computers can be more persuasive than humans. So they said they can be more persistent than human beings. They can offer greater, uh, they're like anonymous, and they can go where humans cannot go and would not be welcomed. So a positive um, example of this would be where you have something like an AI chat where students can ask questions that they might be embarrassed to ask a real person. That would be a place where computers can be in that space. They're invited in. People don't feel awkward because they know nobody's paying attention to them, right? That was the whole idea of this pervasive technology lab. And it was based on the findings of Skinner who, you know, is a psychologist, not that Skinner, different Skinner, there you go, uh, who was a psychologist who said, I can make any animal do whatever I want to by giving them the right reinforcements. And so you remember a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, they were talking in this book about how the author was like, I don't think humans are supposed to be like that. I think humans are supposed to pursue deeply meaningful, valuable things, they shouldn't be like a rat who just wants the carrot so it runs in a circle five times, right? Okay, but this pervasive technology lab said, here's everything Skinner learned about teaching or about um, manipulating people, basically, how you can use these reinforcements to make students or make people do things. And so all of these people who were building technology this class was like, take all of those things and and make up something in technology. Build something that kind of uses these underlying principles, right? So um, Tristan and his friend decided to see if they could get people to share photos more often. And they remembered that Skinner said the most important or powerful um, reinforcements were immediate reinforcements. So Tristan and his friend built Instagram. And they added to it the ability to like and share things. And so everyone was like, wow, that's amazing that you can just take this principle and then build a little thing. And all of a sudden, everybody's starting to share their pictures all the time. It's actually called captology now. So taking you captive. It is 
all the things that they learned from Skinner and more modern persuasion techniques, and they combine that with technology. And yeah. in the middle of that overlap, how do we use technology to better persuade you? And they call it captology. So what I think is so interesting about that is, you know, Matt, we're always talking to schools about gamification. Like, how can you gamify this so students will want to do it? You know why people like gamification? Because it works. Because when I get a badge or I get a streak or I get a this or I get a people then are that's the dopamine hit. And so they're continuing to pursue that. And the hard part about that is real life. I do a bunch of Zoom calls every day and I don't have the like constant emojis coming from the people I'm talking to. They're like, you're doing great. You're doing great. You're doing great. You're doing right. That's re real life is just us having this conversation. And I don't know yeah. if I'm doing great or I'm not doing great. So this idea that you could share a picture and everyone would be like, it's awesome. That is this fundamentally we're gamifying this process, right? Okay. So in this class, though, there were no ethical questions. We're not talking about like, what should we be doing? What, but, but just what can we do? What can we accomplish in this persuasion kind of piece? All right. Until the very last class when they're presenting their projects and one of Tristan's classmates said, can you imagine if there was a profile of every single person on the planet and we knew everything there is to know about them? Not just when they were born, not just where they live, not just where their parents were, but also their personality. Are they? Do they respond to optimism or pessimism? Do they like new experiences or do, do they like nostalgia? Literally anything you can know about a person, we know about every person on the planet. At which time Tristan got very, very nervous <laughs> and he said, I kind of think maybe if we're talking about harnessing the power of nudging a billion people, gamifying the lives of a billion people, we should be asking some ethical questions like, how do you ethically engage a billion people's minds? Or how do you ethically structure people's attention? Two billion people's attention. How do you ethically structure it? Do we want it to be fractured where they're constantly searching for this high? Or do we want to build protections around it? And no one was asking those questions at the time because it was just a possibility, right? They were in future thinking. They were just like, oh, that's fun. It would be really fun to see if we could build something like that. Okay. Then Tristan goes and he works at Google. And one of the things that I think would be so helpful as you're talking to students about this vying for attention and these things that are keeping you from deep, deep focus is to talk about the value of Google. So one of the owners, Larry Page, he's one of the founders, he's worth $102 billion. I, huh? I don't even understand what that means. <laughs> it's kind okay. of a different Yeah. His colleague, Sergey Brin, is worth $99 billion, and poor Eric Schmidt is only worth $20 billion. That is not the value of the company. That is the value of the owners. The value of the company is $1 trillion. That's how much Google is worth. So when we're talking about who you're up against in terms of protecting your deep focus that is the kind of money that is being invested in learning how to keep you distracted and how to keep you paying attention to all of these other things. Okay. 
So Tristan goes to Google. He's designing all these things. He gets very nervous at some point, and he's like, I think we're doing a bad job. I don't. I actually think this is unethical what we're doing. I'm going to quit. And when he quit, he sent out a PowerPoint to everyone and was like, I think you're asking the wrong questions. I can't work here anymore. It's making me very nervous. I don't think we're thinking about this in the right way. And all of his colleagues were like, you're totally right. And Google was like, you're totally right. Come back. You are going to be the first ever design ethicist. Your job in everything we design is to ask questions about whether or not it is ethical. And Tristan's like, this is great news because this is what I wanted to be doing from the beginning. Right. right? So he started saying things like, hey, what if instead of every single time you get an email, we buzz your phone? Instead of that, what if we just batch it? What if like you get that twice a day? So like you got 10 emails. What if we just do it once an hour? You got 10 emails this hour. And then next hour you get two. Um, what if we put a warning up that when you click on a notification on your phone or a picture, what if we say, hey, it takes the average person 20 minutes to get back to what you were previously focused on. You're going to kind of go down a rabbit hole and usually it's 20 minutes before you can get focused. Can we just give them that pause to be like, well, that's crazy town. I don't have 20 minutes, right? Or what if we were designing things to minimize stress and create calmer states of mind? These are all ethical questions that we should be thinking of as we're designing. Um, I just want to pause there and say, can you believe that that people get a notification every time an email comes in? Like there was a time and space where somebody said, I maybe think we don't have to do that. And Google and a lot of other places were like, oh, no, you definitely need a notification every time you come, uh, every time you get an email, right? It used yeah. to be that you had to go check your email. You would go see. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. That that was a thing where you're like, oh, I need to I need to go and turn the computer on or go to the computer and check. No, Matt, right? I was thinking about after chapel. After chapel at ACU, everybody would go check their email because it's like, what has happened since I was in class all morning? Now we've had chapel. Now I'm going. I want to say, okay, the idea yeah. that somehow we are living in a reality where every single time I get an email, I need to have my phone buzz and tell me that. That was a decision that was made not for your safety and sanity and deep thinking, but because we're trying to figure out how to drive you to what we've created for you, you know, as many times as we can think of. How do we put more ads in front of you? How do we get you to click on these promotions? Yeah. Right. So what happened when Tristan became the design ethicist and started asking all these questions is every time he would go to a, me a meeting, Google would say, hey, success is the amount of time that people have their eyeballs on our product. So we are going to think of how to alert and vibrate and tell them and steal focus from anything else because the more they are staring at our product, that is called engagement and that's what we're looking for. And so this idea that we are distracted, that is not by mistake. That is by design. That fuels all of these companies. The more you are looking at your phone, the more money they are making. So, Rachel, there's a company that is literally called Dopamine Labs. And TechCrunch did, uh, wrote an article about them. But, but they, are, they provide a software program that's called Skinner, literally named after Skinner. Oh, my gosh. And that it, 
So Skinner monitors an app's various prompts and notifications and how users respond to them. And the goal, stated goal, is to help companies tweak those features to make them maximally sticky. The company claims its service can add an average of 10% to the revenues of the startups that use it. And TechCrunch writer Jonathan Schieber says, if all that sounds creepy, don't worry, it is. Yeah. But, hey. but I think that that's really well, important for Well, listen, I just want to say, I want to say about that, thank you for being honest about it, dopamine. Because at least we can look at it and say, that's crazy business, as opposed to some of these other companies who are like, oh, no, we're just trying to be most helpful for you, right? Don't don't feel too bad. They do have another app that's called Space that they provide, which they say this is, this is to counteract all of their other work on dopamine. Uh, this is to help you set up notifications and the time that you spend online to manage that. So... If you wanted, but then Dopamine Labs is figuring out when you're turning that on and probably trying to figure out how to make you turn that off. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, I was just thinking about whoever thought of push notifications versus page visits. You and I were saying like it used yeah. to be that what you were trying to do on a website was get people to go visit your page. And then after a while, everyone's like, why are we waiting for them to visit, visit our page? We can just send out these push notifications all the time. So you don't have to come looking for it. I'm just going to send it to your phone and I'm going to. So, okay. When Tristan, he resigned from being this from Google, when yeah. he resigned, Google was shaping 11 billion interruptions to people's lives every day. And they controlled 50% of notifications on all phones in the whole world. Wow. Wow. So you want to talk about this idea of, um, I forget who said it. It may have been Tristan. He said, you know, you have to be really careful about technology because the technology you use squishes and squeezes the entire world down into that medium through that medium. And then at the other end comes out a different world. So if yeah. we're talking about a company that has that many interruptions and notifications in their hand, I would hope that we are asking good questions about the morality of that. Right. So there's another guy named Parker who's at Facebook. He had a very brief stint as a uh, CEO, I think of, of Facebook and he's talking about it and he says it literally changes your relationship with society with each other it probably interferes with productivity in weird ways I mean just think about it like if you're yeah, constantly getting these other notifications you're not able to focus on your task he says God only knows what it's doing to our child's brains children's brains it's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human society. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move on now to Tristan's friend, Aza Raskin. His dad actually is the one who built the computer for Steve Jobs. And his, his dad, whose name was Jeff Raskin, built the Mac around this core principle that that user's attention is sacred. 
that actually the job of technology, the reason we make technology is because it takes parts of us that are most human and it extends them. That's what a paintbrush is. That's what a cello is. That's what language is. These are technologies that extend some part of us. It is not about making us superhuman. It is about making us extra human. So how do we leverage efficiencies and effectiveness of, of tools in order to be more connected, see more people, spend more time with other people, all of the things that are really, really important. Yeah. Um, this is an extension of us, right? And I don't want to be, I don't want to toot our horn, Matt, but FAIRS 360, we have always designed our technology to be an extension of student affairs and academic professionals. We the say we want yeah. you to stare at the screen. We don't want you to be bossed around by this technology. We actually are trying to free up your time to look at your student and, and see what's happening with them. We don't, we want it to be an extension of you. We don't want it to be a substitution. We don't send automatic emails and texts and all of that sort of thing. Cause we're like, Hey, it's an extension of a relationship that students expect when they come to a campus. Right. Uh, so anyway, okay, so his dad, that's his perspective. Uh, as his dad, that's his perspective on technology. As a Raskin designed the infinite scroll. Or as Viva calls it, the death scroll. Yeah. So it used to be that you would read a page or on your phone you would read and then you would go to page two and then it would load and then you would read it and then you would go to page three and then it would load, right? He designed the this. So the fact that you can just scroll for eternity on these apps, that's his claim to fame. <laughs> and um, the majority of apps these days use his technology. It is like fundamental to the way that we um, are able to engage with this technology. So when Azza was... 32, he sat down and did a calculation. At a conservative estimate, infinite scrolls make you spend 50% more of your time on sites like Twitter. Many people believe it's more than that, but conservative estimate, 50% 50, 50 more time. Sticking with this low ball percentage, as I wanted to know what it meant in practice, if billions of people were spending 50% more time on strings of social media sites. When he was done, he stared at the sums. Every day, as a direct result of his invention, the combined total of 200,000 more human lifetimes, every moment from birth until death, is now spent scrolling through a screen. Every day. These hours otherwise would have been spent on some other activity. When he described this to me, he sounded a little stunned. He said, that time is just completely gone. It's like an entire life, poof. That time, which could have been used for solving climate change, for spending time with their family, for strengthening social bonds, for whatever it make, takes to make their life well-lived, it's just, and he trailed off. And I imagined my young godson and all his teenage friends scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. So he was pretty devastated. I'm pretty sad about that one. He was pretty devastated after he realized that. And he was like, I just realized that because something is easy doesn't make it good. Like I designed this to make it easier for people, but I didn't, I was asking the wrong question. It doesn't make it good. And this um, goes back to what you were saying about understanding the, 
what the magician is doing, right? So what are these things? That death scroll is a key tool for them. Yeah. And so I, being more mindful, like, have I read enough? Did I set a timer and then I'm done? Yeah. Set a timer. I don't know about you, but sometimes like if my scroll gets stuck, I'm actually relieved. I feel like it's an out. I'm like, oh, okay, good. Shut it. Shut it down. Right. There's not this, like this infinite, um, entertainment. Okay. We got to go fast. Cause I got a lot more. Sorry. I keep getting carried away, but we got, we're, we'll stay on task. So coming out of Tristan and Aza's experience, one of the things that this author talks about is how do these companies make money? And I think everybody knows that companies, these companies make money selling advertisements. Okay. We know that, but actually what they would say if they were being honest is that they make money because the longer you spend on the sites, the more they know about you. And so everything you were doing, everything you Google search for, everything in your Gmail, everything you look at on Facebook, everything you look at in Instagram, every, um, what's that called? Subscription you have. Every, everything, they're just scanning and sorting and understanding better about you so that they can target more specifically the ads for you. And here's the example that this book um, gives about what that, what that looks like. Um, as I explained it to me, saying, I should imagine that inside Facebook servers and inside Google servers, there are little voodoo dolls and it's a model of you. It starts not looking very much like you. It's sort of like a genetic model of a human, but then they're collecting your click trails, everything you clicked on and everything about you, everything you search for, every detail of your life online. They're reassembling all that metadata that you don't think is really meaningful so that the doll looks more and more like you. Then when you show up, for example, on YouTube, they wake the doll up and they test out hundreds of thousands of videos against this doll, seeing what makes its arm twitch and move so they know if it's effective. And then they serve that to you. It seemed like a ghoulish image, um, such a ghoulish image, and he paused and then said, by the way, they have a doll like that for one in four human beings on the earth, right? So they are just crafting this experience from you by taking everything they know about you and then serving the perfect thing for you to be distracted and for you to, to engage with and kind of go down this line with. Well, Matt, when I think about that, it's like I said last week, I'm a I'm an adult person with a fully formed brain. When I think about that for our college students, it's it's really difficult. How what how can we gird them up? to be able to understand what's happening and to be able to be resistant to that. And I don't think we talk with them about it enough. I don't think they would have any understanding of all of the data that's being collected and how that's being used against them to fracture their focus. I think it's so important to talk about it in terms of, so the model, as you said, the why, all of these, all of these companies that give you things for free, well, it's not for free. And, and in fact, you, you are their target and they're making a lot of money. Think about all these free um, apps and all of their CEOs who are billionaires, right? I mean, they're making a ton of money. And I think it's really helpful for our students to start thinking about, well, how do they make that money? They make that money because they know you so yeah. well. They can just sell you. They are literally selling you to advertisers, getting you to click more and more. And 
Well, once you start talking through that, I, I think it opens some possibilities, and this is where I have some optimism that perhaps this generation in higher ed right now can start thinking about what's another way. How much, I don't know, Rachel, how much would you pay so that a company didn't know exactly who you were and yeah. target you like that? For sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I think today is a hard show because it is, it is the first part of the solution, which is uncovering how bad it is. Right. right? And, and neither you or I like to live in that place. But I think we have to get a little bit scared about it in order to to really say, hey, we have to address this with students. I wanted to to talk about one last piece here, which is that all of the science says that people pay more attention to things that make them feel outraged and angry. So right. if you have a newsfeed that's full of like serenity and flowers and you just feel so happy and you just scroll through and whatever, right? But um, there's a lot of evidence, a lot of um, experiments that say like on Twitter, if you want to get retweeted, you need to have the words attack, bad, or blame in your tweet. On YouTube, if you want to get more clicks and more watches, you need to have the words hates, obliterates, slams, or destroys in your YouTube. So this is just a fact. Skinner would say, like, hey, we pay attention to things that make us feel angry and make us feel outrageous or outraged about it. Focusing on the threats, right? That's right. So then all of these algorithms, they are not, they're not guiding you to a gentler, kinder, kinder, like more accepting place. They are guiding you towards more outrage and more anger. And so it's like wherever you, whatever you search for, their goal is that your end destination is crazier than where you started. So like, I want to see a video about this and then it ends and then they give you another video that's a little bit crazier. It's going to make you a little, or like, well, that, that makes me angry. And they just keep taking you on this trip. And it does a couple of things. First of all, it makes um, anger and hate a habit where you expect when you're on these things to be outraged and why is everyone stupid and why do they have dumb opinions and who thinks that and right. So that's one piece. But also I was telling you that the only videos I ever see at the airport are people being mean and angry and like throwing trash cans at each other and yelling at the T TSA people and like being entitled and being like just being awful. Angry, people. just angry oh all the time. And every time I see them, I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Why are they so mad? And then right. you and I travel. People are so kind to each other. They change seats on the airplane so their friends can sit next to each other. They help old ladies get their suitcase up and put their suitcase down. They say, excuse me. They offer, like, they are so kind. Right. And every time I'm like, it's really funny that if all you did was scroll through whatever you're scrolling through, you would think the airport must be the worst place ever. And it's not true. People are really kind and generous to each I've other. Never seen, I've never seen a fight in an airport. Right. So this idea of using what's going to make you angry and outraged to inflame you so that then you're feeling the hatred and what's wrong with everybody and blah, blah, blah. It actually fractures our sense of community. Right. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? Well, no. I mean, I, I think we've driven that point home. I think we see that that this dopamine fuel 
what's happening. It, so it's, it's creating these responses. And so we, if, if we, exactly what you said, if we start looking at what's another way that we could encourage a, a positive feeling yeah. with our students when they see each other, can we start getting that to be the dopamine? Yeah. That sure. when they're together, actually in person, when they go do something without their phone, that that starts to create community because we are human beings. And, and if we double down on being human and, and do what human beings have done for 10,000 years, you know, and as far as like coming together, what this stuff is doing is pulling us apart. And once we recognize that we can start to battle it. So I just think about this in terms of the conversation on our campuses needs to be about uncovering what's actually happening. And one thing that this book makes that I think is really, really important is that these technologies were deliberately designed to grab and hold your attention for as long as possible. That's how they get paid. That's every, every trick that they can think of. They are trying to draw your attention to them. But the thing is, Matt, that is, that is not inevitable. That is a choice that those companies and those designers made in 2002 or whenever to say, we are going to leverage every trick we can in order to hold your attention hostage, right? Did you know that the the social network movie came out in 2010? What's that movie? The, the, the movie about Zuckerberg and Facebook. Oh, really? 2010. Wow. That's crazy. I'll have to go that's back crazy. and watch that one. Yeah. Um, so my my point about the fact that these are designed to be distracting is that they don't have to be. We could actually design our phones and our technology and our ways to have social connection with each other with the idea at the center that we want to protect people's attention and sustained focus, that we want to interrupt them as little as possible, that we want to not pull people away from other people, but actually give them tools to engage in their deep and meaningful goals, right? And it's not that these things inherently are bad. It's that if we don't have the right language to talk about how they should be redesigned to give us a healthy boundary there, then it's just really hard for us to understand how they could ever be good, right? It is like Zuckerberg in front of, I think it was Congress, where he was like, well, what what do you want me to do to protect your kids? Like, just tell me and I'll do it. That seems disingenuous when then you understand that you have a lot of money going towards things that are drawing our students away from people that are actually created. Like you've spent a lot of time and money knowing how to distract them. How about if you do the opposite of those things? That's what we want you to do. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Not as much money as that. That's not so good for the shareholders. Yeah, you know? not so good. So that idea of designing technology around a different set of incentives, I think is a great yeah. language. I would love for students to say, I I want you to do action items, but I just want to say one more time, this app that I have used for four years that's called Minutia, it goes off once a day for 60 seconds. Once you open it, you have five seconds to take a picture and then you cannot see it again until four years from then, 
four years from when you take the picture, then you can download it. So the idea is that it's like, why are you looking at me like that? Did I say something you wrong? Can't, you cannot see the picture for four no. years? No. Wow. So the idea is your life is beautiful in this moment. Take a picture right now. Not not to show other people and to put filters yeah. on and all of that kind of stuff. And then at the end of four years, they say, look how beautiful your life is. Look at all of these moments that you've had that you captured so that you could relish them later, right? That's a great example of designing around ethical questions. We want you to be very present in your life and we want you to capture what it really looks like and not worry about likes and shares. So I just, I love those conversations with students. It'd be so fun to talk about how would you design it if you wanted to protect your focus. Um, okay, Matt, you have a long list of, of action items for us, but you, you're going to have to sp speak. I'll go through quick. Them. Okay. I mean, we, we want, so thanks for listening through. We did call this shields up for a reason. I think that's really important. And then I just became a little Star Trek -y, geeky on it. But, but if you think about Star Trek and, and shields and what are the shields that we want to put up or, or talk to our students about the first would be your primary shields and, your primary shields would be establishing dedicated technology-free zones and times in your places like your house, when you're eating food, when you're in your bedroom, creating spaces you can focus without distraction. So primary shields are really important. Then your other secondary shield, digital detoxes or breaks from social media uh, tech and technology to give your brain a chance to recover and improve your focus. Uh, your third shields, tertiary shields, customized notification settings, set on, turn on, do not disturb. Your deflector shields, use website and app blockers. Your emergency force fields. This is where Scotty's like, I'm giving it all I got, right? <laughs> uh, set clear boundaries for technology use. Limit your screen time. You know, Johan uh, Hari, the author of, of Stolen Focus, he has a thing that's called a K-safe, and, and he puts his phone in this case safe and sets the time and he cannot go back and get it until uh, that time has passed. So I think being really thoughtful, one of my favorites in, in all of these, uh, I guess my, my last action item would be cloaking devices. And so hiding from the technology, cultivate hobbies and interests outside of technology, like reading, being outside, learning a musical instrument to promote your mental engagement and growth. I think that's really important. So just being very intentional about, okay, how do I shield up from all of this? Now that we know these are weapons that have been specifically designed to target us. Yeah. I was thinking about this part in the book where, um, Tristan, maybe it was, I don't, I can't remember who it was, was saying to Facebook, like, hey, it would be really cool if in Facebook you could see the friends that are nearest you so that then you could go have lunch with them. So like on a college campus, like, oh, John's right around the corner. Let's go have lunch together. Grab a cup of coffee. And Facebook was like, no, we need them to look at their screens, not at each other. So if they go together to have coffee, then we have lost their focus. That is broken. Right. That is, that is that is actually you can see how 
we aren't looking at each other and we aren't spending time with each other. And Matt, I think for you and I both, the goal of this, this time together today is to help our students understand their weaknesses so that the magic will not work anymore, right? That you can redesign your life to say, I don't have to be held captive to technology that is trying to steal my focus, but instead I can look up and I can see who's near me and I can go spend time with them and I can develop this whole deep thinking, healthy boundaries with technology um, so that we can just live joyful lives. So, Well, I have a lot of hope, Rachel. I just do because if you think about the students on our campus and those who are listening, taking time and being really thoughtful to walk through with students, kind of all that's happening and then to, to tap into their creativity to solve this problem, that's what we want, right? We have a lot of big problems that we want to solve. and We can't do it unless we're focused. For sure. All right, guys, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us.